Grab your Bible and turn it to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking at chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. We are in the midst of a series called Repent and Be Loved. And we're looking at four different characteristics that we need to repent of and look to Jesus for our salvation. This morning, the characteristic we're going to be looking at today is acceptance. Acceptance. I know none of you struggle with insecurity. I know that. I, I know there's probably three or four when you walk into a room. I know there's three. So for the rest of you that are good, I mean, maybe just, just take notes on how I preach this and how I do this. Don't, don't consider what, what it is uh, that's being said. We can help those four people in here that struggle with it. So, No, um, it certainly pertains to all of us. And so... Uh, I want to draw your attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Here now the reading of God's Word. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he then says to Pete, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want you to know this. I have felt insecure almost my entire life. There are a few exceptions where I have felt secure, and it's mainly been in my home. But I have wanted to be liked and accepted in nearly every room that I've ever walked into. One of the most profound memories of my insecurity, though, comes in some of the most formative years of my life. I think back to middle school when I went to a school where I knew no one, sixth grade, no nobody. And it, it, there was this profound desire to be accepted and received by these people that I didn't know. And the way that I, that I sought that acceptance was that I decided that I was going to mimic the boys in my class 
and make fun the way that these immature boys make fun of other people. And, and I remember in seventh grade, there were rumors about this girl going around. And they're rumors. They're, they're like, <laughs> thinking back now, you're like, these aren't even close to being remotely true. But I looked at this girl and I told her that she was something based off of the rumors that I heard. And the only reason I did it was that I could get a laugh from the buddies that were at the table with me. I, I think back to that moment in absolute horror because I see her face when I said that thing to her. And the face dropped and, and, and like the disposition of her fell down. I said the nastiest thing to her so that I could be accepted by these boys at a picnic table. I wish I could say that I've grown, uh, well, I've certainly grown hopefully from that. <laughs> but the idea of wanting to be accepted continues to chase me. It happened in high school. It was a similar situation. I went to a new high school where I didn't know anybody. And so I thought, okay, who do I want to be accepted by? Of course, as a high school, you want to be accepted by the people who have the most friends, are the most social. And so you go, I want to be with the cool kids. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to be with the cool kids. So I go and sit down at their lunch table. And then I become a, a, a do-boy for them. Every day I had to sit at the, the only way that I could sit at their table is if I took their 50 cents and went and got each of them their Cokes. And so I became known as the Coke Run Boy. But because I did the Coke Runs for them, I could sit at their table. In truth, I hated every moment of it. Because my standing and acceptance was based off of me doing an errand for them. I hated it. I could go on. But let me ask you this question. Can you relate to the insecurity that I experience as well? That when you walk into a room, you go, I'm not sure I belong here. That when you walk into maybe even office space or a school, that you go, I am not sure if I fit here. I know you can relate. There's not four people in this room that have that struggle. It's all of our struggle. We all have this desire to be accepted, welcomed, loved, appreciated, and enjoyed wherever we go. But the reality is, is that we often fail to experience the very thing that we long for. We don't experience acceptance. We don't feel like we're loved. We don't experience a welcome that we crave. And because of this, there's no peace in our life. It's just insecurity, insecurity, insecurity. But we do not sit idly by, do we? No, we respond to this insecurity. And most of us are so clever at how we respond to that insecurity that we feel. And we walk into a room and our minds are working like an expensive computer. We scan the room and we're processing all the factors we see. What people wear, how people are talking, what their hair looks like. All these things. We pick up on conversations that people are having. And so we say, okay, this is how I need to talk. Um, we, we, we listen to that. And then maybe we say, you know what? I don't care about my values right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crave the peer pressure because I will do whatever it takes to be accepted. And sure, we fall to that peer pressure rather than staying true to what we know to be right. For some, this inner turmoil is so profound that we have to resolve to drinking just to, to, to calm that inner peace, looking at alcohol for, for, for liquid courage. 
I mean, we joke about it being liquid courage, but let's, let's think about it from, from the perspective of what it is. It is simply a way to avoid the insecurity that is haunting all of our hearts and minds. We'll do whatever it takes for this loud voice of insecurity to be quieter. But is there another way? Another way than looking to substances or, or a way where we can go away from the values that we know to be true. Is there another way for us to not worry about what others think of us, but what we say or what we wear? Is there? Is there? There is. And we find our answer from an incredibly unlikely source. We find our answer from the woman in Luke chapter 7. This woman looks not to her appearance or to her social behavior for the acceptance of others. In fact, according to the worldly standards and to the, the, the people of her day, she is far from acceptable. I mean, a disdain that you can hear in Simon's voice. She, you notice he doesn't even name her. It's just sinner or this woman. I mean, he just dis disdains her. He doesn't accept her. But she considers not what Simon thinks. She considers not what other people at the table think of her at this table. She only considers one person. And that one person is Jesus. And what we see is that she willingly makes herself a fool for this one person. Here we have an example that we are to follow if we are to find the resolution for the insecurity in our heart. The satisfaction of our desire for acceptance is always about whom you look to for acceptance. Let me say that again. The satisfaction of our desire for acceptance is always about whom you look to for acceptance. And what we're going to see is that there is freedom from the enslavement to our insecurity, particularly from others, when we place our faith in one particular person. I can say that this woman is free for two reasons. She is free because of her faith and free because of forgiveness. Here we have the key to unlocking peace in the midst of any situation we find ourselves in. Faith and forgiveness. Freedom from faith and forgiveness. This woman unlocks it. Will you? Well, let's study her faith. And let's look at the forgiveness she got. We might unlock that. So first, let's study the freedom that she got because of her faith. You know, there was one thing that drove this woman. I've already alluded to this. But it was her faith in Jesus. And, and, and what I want you to note is that it is a messy and it is an odd faith. Recall the story. She sees Jesus reclining at the table of a religious man for dinner. And what I want you to see is that this is not, this is not, there's not chairs at a table. In the Middle East, they used to just sit at a low table, kind of like what you see in the Far East today. Like you can go to some sushi restaurants, take your shoes off, and you're just kind of lounging around. Similar situation here. And so Jesus is reclining at a table that Simon has put forth in front of him for dinner. Now when she comes to Jesus, she's standing behind him. But notice what she's doing. She's so overwhelmed. In, uh, for some reason, we don't know exactly why. But she's so overwhelmed that she begins to weep. And her weeping is so profound that her tears start to fall on Jesus' feet. It's kind of strange, right? Now you would think, okay, let me take a rag and wipe Jesus' feet. 
But this is not what she does. She does the oddest thing. She takes her hair and she puts her hair on Jesus' feet and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. It's an absolute mess. I mean, this is so strange. It's odd. It's messy. But then it gets even more odd. She then gets down when her hair's on and starts to kiss Jesus' feet. This is odd. I know you've never seen anyone kiss feet and cry over someone's feet like this. This is odd. But it's a demonstration of her faith. And I'm here to tell you, it gets even odder than that. It says that she takes this ointment, this alabaster flask of ointment. You have to understand, this is probably her most priceless possession that she owns. The most expensive thing she owns. And she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with it. It's this messy, kind of muddy, but kind of smelling really nice feel. Like, it's weird. This is an odd moment. But this woman displays in these messy, odd, strange reactions that she didn't care about anyone but Jesus. She wanted to honor Jesus. She looked to Jesus for her life and hope rather than from anyone else in the room. Let me ask you, how would you respond to her? If you were sitting at the table like Simon, how would you respond? My guess is at best you would see, see her with like pity. Oh, this poor woman. We, we have got to help her out. At worst, you'd be just like Simon, judging her. But again, she's not worried about what you think or what others think. She's only concerned about Jesus. And the question is for us right now, right here, is how does Jesus deal with a messy, odd faith? This is the question. How does Jesus deal with this craziness? And what we see is probably one of the most important things that you need to see this morning. We need to see how Jesus responds to her messy, odd faith. There's three things that Jesus does, and you need to see this. First, you need to see that Jesus welcomes her. He welcomes her. Unlike the world who requires constant upholding of standards that are ever-changing, Jesus is gracious and welcoming to a woman who is simply a mess. Consider again the woman at Jesus' feet. I said she already untied her hair and has let it down, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. What you need to see, though, is this is a serious cultural no-no. If you consider most Islamic cultures, a view of woman's hair is meant for the husband alone. So it's an intimate reality. Perhaps you've seen in the news, women in Iran are cutting their hair right now. This is such a cultural no-no to expose their hair and then to cut it. But this is meant for the husband. But here her hair is all over Jesus' feet. It's awkward and strange. And you would expect Jesus to kindly kind of, hey, hey, not right now. This is, no, no. Like, you know, she's real kind. But he doesn't do any of that. No, he welcomes her messy, culturally unsound affection and love. He welcomes it. Do you see how, how welcoming this is? You see how Jesus is willing to be associated with a woman of the city? And if you need to know what a woman of the city is, just think about what happens at dark in the alleys, okay? This is what she is. But Jesus was willing to lose his reputation among the religious and the well-doers at whom's house he's at that he might display 
a welcome to this woman. He welcomes her messiness. He welcomes her faith, regardless of what it is. But he doesn't just welcome her. I said he does three things. He welcomes her, but then secondly, he does something that we wouldn't even think about. He defends her. Recall the host, Simon. He sees this whole affair unfolding. And remember, he wanted to bring Jesus in. And the basis of his, of like his reasoning, like he's judging Jesus. If Jesus would have known who this was, he would have known. Like he would, I guess he's not a prophet. So we can kind of see why Simon's even bringing Jesus in there, right? He's trying to judge Jesus. But Jesus flips the tables on him and says, oh, I'm going to tell you something, okay? You who are hosting me. I'm actually going to go to bat for her against you. You who said if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus goes, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then he tells this parable, or kind of an example. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, Simon says in verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, perhaps you missed it. But Jesus here gives Simon a defense to this woman who has thrown herself all at Jesus' feet, who's entrusted herself to him. And he's telling Simon, she's loving more than you. Yeah, it's messy. Yeah, it's culturally unsound. But I, Jesus, receive this. Don't you dare look down upon her. So Jesus not only welcomes her, he defends her amongst people she probably thought she was inferior to. But Jesus doesn't just welcome her and defend her in front of the religious, but he also honors her. He welcomes, he defends, he honors her. Jesus turns toward the woman. I love this. You, you have to see this detail. He turns toward the woman. And you think if you turn your eyes to somebody, you're going to speak to them. But what does the text say? He turns his eyes to the woman, but who does he talk to? He talks to Simon. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Unlike Simon, Jesus doesn't see what Simon sees. In looking at her, he sees a more honorable woman than Simon. Jesus here is elevating a prostitute above a pastor. I want you to see this. He elevates the prostitute above the pastor. I wrote this in my note. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Okay? What is going on here? This is a crazy situation. This woman is crazy, yet Jesus is welcoming her, defending her, and honoring her. Why? It's because of her faith. It's because she trusted not what others thought, but she trusted only what Jesus thought. And do you see what her faith led to? I, I, I didn't say this, but welcome. It led to a welcome. It led to defense. It led to honor. Her faith led to her freedom. She had the very thing she longed for because she trusted in the right person who, who, who judges not according to actions. <laughs> this text illustrates that perfectly. He judges according to trust. So friends, when that insecurity bubbles up, who are you trusting? 
I, I love being a parent. And parents with little kids, you can see this. And there's a small window as parents that we see this. But, but kids demonstrate this courage socially that unlike us, most of us don't. Our kids will do things that we don't want to do. Let's just walk into a room and they own it. Like, what's up? How's it going? And you're going, I could never do that. No, why do they do that? Why do you think kids, before the world hits them and they know all this stuff, you know why they do it? Because they trust their parents love them. I mean, they're cleaning diapers. They know the mess that a child has, right? But the diaper doesn't deter them. No, the parent stays by them despite the mess, despite the craziness. And those kids have the most profound courage because their courage is rooted in who they trust. And so they walk in every room they know. Like, what's up? I don't care. But it's a small window. They start to grow and mature and it's all gone from there. But here's what I want you to know. You have an opportunity to walk through that small window again. You realize that in trusting Jesus, regardless of how you do it, in the sense of like the messiness of it, I mean, you, this woman is like, the, in our eyes, could be the worst of the worst, but she trusted Jesus in the midst of her messiness. But it's a matter of trusting Jesus. You have this small window to trust Jesus, and you too will be welcomed, defended, and honored. And when you understand that Jesus is for you and loves you in the midst of your mess, your faith will free you. Look at Jesus. He asks not what you bring. He just asks that you come empty-handed. I mean, this is why when we do the benediction at the end, I, I ask you to receive your hands, right? Like, open your hands. And some of you guys are like, what's going on with this? But it's like, there, there is nothing in your hands that you're going to receive this blessing of God. You're, the blessing of God is not dependent on anything that you've done or how you've done. It simply comes to you because you believe and you trust. He welcomes you, defends you, honors you because of your trust, not because of anything else. So find the freedom. The window is open. Walk through it. Trust Jesus. Look not to the people around you for your acceptance, welcome, honor, and defense. Look to Jesus. Because ultimately, the key is to whom you're looking to. Now, I love this. We see that there's freedom because of faith. But secondly, what we're going to see is that there's also, it's even more profound than this, that our faith led to even more profound reality. What we're going to see here is that her faith leads to forgiveness. Her faith leads to forgiveness. This woman trusts Jesus and is accepted. Her faith led her to freedom, but her faith leads her also to forgiveness. Consider again the lesson that Jesus tells Simon after he had begun to judge Jesus for letting this sort of woman do this to him. In verse 47, he says to Simon, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What Jesus is telling Simon is that her free display of love towards Jesus is rooted in the forgiveness she has received from him. She was free because she was forgiven. Think with me about this woman. Put yourself in her shoes. If there's one thing that this woman knew of herself, it's that she was a sinner. How many times do you think she heard what Simon the Pharisee thought in his head as she walked the streets? 
How many times did she walk and she was known more by the actions of her life rather than her name? How small do you think she felt for being the woman that she was? I think she knew and felt incredibly small. She knew she was a sinner. She knew she was small, insignificant, and unworthy in front of all these people, but especially in front of Jesus. And I think that's ultimately what explains her tears, is that she could be near Jesus in all her sin and be near Jesus. And it was so profound, so emotional, that she couldn't stop crying. She finds in Jesus something different than the world. She finds in Jesus someone who doesn't judge her harshly for who she was or what she had done. But you've got to see this. And I think this is perhaps the most important part of this particular point. But Jesus also did not ignore who she was or what she had done. He didn't ignore it. No, he forgave her. He forgave her. Here, once again, we have a grace and merciful act amidst a judgmental and harsh world. And this forgiveness is so significant. This forgiveness is Christianity. This forgiveness implies two things that Jesus gives to this woman. Number one, Jesus has the authority to forgive. To forgive implies that you are the one who's been wronged. If you came up to me and asked for forgiveness or something you did to your neighbor, like let's say like, Oh, forgive me. I, I bumped into my neighbor's car and I didn't tell him about it. Like, well, you don't have to. I, I don't need the forgiveness. Your neighbor needs. Like, you need to go seek forgiveness from the neighbor. So forgiveness is implied in this. It's, it's, it's against. It's, it's given by the one who's been wrong. So when Jesus tells her that her, that her sins are forgiven, the implication is that he's the one who's been wronged. And of course, those who are sitting there are so offended that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. They, they even say that in verse 49, I believe. Like, who is this who has the... He thinks he can forgive sins. But Jesus is saying this, I'm God. And because I'm God, I am the one who has the authority to forgive. And this woman of this city understood that what the other people didn't. That Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. So this forgiveness is a reality. That Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's the first implication. But the second one is this. Not only that Jesus has the authority... But he's the one who pays for the forgiveness. Jesus pays for the forgiveness. He's the one authorized to forgive, and he's the one who pays for the forgiveness. Listen to this. Listen, this is important. There is always a cost to forgiveness. Always. If you were to break a lamp in my house because you were fooling around and you are pushing each other like little high school kids, <laughs> boom, and you knocked each other over, okay? But you would never do that. Um, my guess is you would pony up the cash and be like, let me pay for the lamp. Like, and the question is, is that forgiveness? No, that's just justice. You broke the lamp, you pay for it. Okay, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is always a cost. There's always a cost to forgiveness. Forgiveness is this. I come to you and say, you, you are horsing around like a bunch of high school kids. Don't worry about it. I'm going to pay that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy another lamp and you don't have to worry about that. That's more forgiveness than the other part. The other part's not forgiveness. Justice is being done by you. Forgiveness is, is me saying, I'm going to pay for the land, even though you were the one who did it. Forgiveness always has a cost. And so the question becomes, where's the cost in this particular text? If Jesus is offering forgiveness, he's also the one paying the cost. In extending forgiveness to this woman, 
Jesus is indeed agreeing to pay for something that she did. And this he'll do when he's hung on a cross not long from then. This is Christianity. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus goes and pays the price for our rebellious actions. For our sin. For our disobedience. This he did when he bled and died for our sins on the cross. Peter says of him, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus had done nothing wrong. And while he didn't deserve the death he died, he willingly went to this death as a payment for the forgiveness of sins, for this woman and for ours. Oh, friends, see how merciful and gracious Jesus is that he not only has the authority to forgive, but that he forgives and he pays the penalty of sin with his own body and his blood. This woman approaches Jesus, the one who is God, with boldness and freedom. And boy, does she make a mess of herself. But she makes a mess of this entire scene because she is trusted in Jesus. And her trust leads to forgiveness. And the forgiveness leads to, look at this, the last phrase that Jesus says. What is the last phrase that he says to her? I want you to see this. Go in, what's the last phrase? Peace. Your faith has led to my welcoming you, defending you, honoring you, and forgiving you. And these realities are what leads to peace. Freedom through, because of forgiveness because of her faith. Um, so most of you guys, a lot of you guys know, I bring them up all the time, but one of my um, superheroes of the last five years, pastoral superheroes, a man named Hal Farnsworth, and one of the things that he's told me in the last year, he says this, everyone is either struggling to be free or they're free to struggle. Everyone is struggling to be free or free to struggle. And I think that this reality points us in our social settings. The question for you, are you struggling to be free? Who are you looking to, to find the freedom? Are you looking to the people that you're rubbing shoulders with? Or are you looking to Jesus? See, when we look to Jesus, then we are free to struggle. We are free to make a mess of our life. We are free to let our hair down and make an absolute mess of our life for Jesus. Not to do whatever you want to live, but to make a mess of it. Because Jesus welcomes our mess. Oh, friends, that we would live by that mantra of we are free to struggle. Because we look to Jesus. It comes by who you look to. Are you looking to one another or are you looking to Jesus? There's only freedom. And look into Jesus. Friends, look to Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your mercy and grace. How quickly we forget how merciful and gracious you are. I mean, we can literally hear of your great mercy, of your forgiveness, and then the next day look elsewhere. We believe, but then we don't believe. Lord, I, I, I pray this for all of us. Help 
our unbelief. May we find freedom in the welcome, in the defense of the honoring and the forgiving that you give to those who trust you. May we be people who trust you. That we then might go wherever we go. In any social setting we find ourselves, like little kids, confident, joyful, peaceful. <coughs> oh, it would be a much freeing life for this. Pray that you would do this for the sake of your glory and our good. Amen.